You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 32 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Tuesday, the 28th of June, 2016. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. Asher King. Oh, I'm back. And Will Forster. Hi there. How have you guys been? It's been a little while since we were all sitting sitting around the table together. I think that we've probably, all four of us, had the best surf we've ever had in Costa Rica last week. Is that, am I overcalling it? It was pretty good. It was definitely pretty good. I've had better surfs there, but, but probably not one. <laughs> but, but probably you wouldn't rate them as good. Because it wasn't the, the, where we went the other day. So, listeners, we went round to the corner to a little secret spot. I, I, hate, I hate it when other I people know. talk about secret spots. I know. But now we're doing it. We're being those guys. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we went round the corner. I have a to really it. heavy emotional investment like a, in that wave. <laughs> we went round the corner to a little wave that uh, we've surfed quite a bit. But you haven't surfed that much, Rue. Well, I've surfed it when it's been small and it's been kind of like fun. I, I didn't, I, I didn't realise until last week the potential that Costa Rica had for getting quite that good. Well, and so what I would say is I've surfed that wave where I've been regularly getting 200 metre long rides. Yeah, I'm not a big and length of ride guy. Yeah, whereas when we went round there the other day, the longest ride I got was just over 100 metres. And I would say that I've come out of the water there having had a much more enjoyable f- session for me even if it didn't have quite the peak. See, I, I, I always feel like in Costa Rica on the whole, I sort of surf really fun waves. I'd say that Costa Rica is the fun wave capital of the world. Yeah, if you want to surf some pretty good waves that aren't going to hurt you, you're in the right spot. Right, and then, but when I think about wanting to go and get scared and get the waves of my life, you know, that's when I sort of think about booking tickets to you know, Tahiti or maybe Indo or places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the the waves that the waves that we had coming in last week because we had a huge south swell come in, and um, yeah, there's this there's this kind of reef and you have to walk around a bunch of rocks. It's a really long rock, and then you have to like swim out through these rocks. If you get caught on the inside, there's rocks. There's just like a lot of rocks everywhere. Yeah, it's... Uh, and it's a pretty it's a pretty nasty spot to get in and out. But um, but yeah, it just the whole thing just was going so square and round. I don't think I can remember the last time I was inside a barrel and was actually able to like trim up and down the wave significantly in the barrel and not reach the lip that was breaking yeah. outside me with my hand when I stretched it right out. It's, I don't think I've ever experienced that in Costa Rica before. Can I just jump in and say that, Rue, you just described that wave as both square and round in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Can we clear that up a little bit? <laughs> One of those waves. Yeah. Uh, I kind of started, uh, started round, went to more of a square shape with a brief oblong period. In yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, finished triangular. Yeah, yeah finished as a hexagon. What have you been up to, Will? I have been picking off the medium-sized waves to your epic swell, (laughs) (laughs) realizing that they're the shallower ones. I tell you what, you were surfing on your backhand, which we weren't, and I would have felt pretty intimidated taking off on my backhand on some of those. Oh, yeah, Yeah. some of them would have really intimidated me. Yeah, I had a couple uh, over-the-fall moments, which I didn't enjoy. You were on like a 5'10", Harry. What were you on, Will? A 6'4". 6'4", and what were you on, Ash? I was uh, on a 6L. Yeah, so you guys were all on pretty small kind of like fishy or short body boards. I had like my sick, sick gun that I only pull out like once a year and I felt kind of stupid when I got it out of the car. Uh, even when we paddled out, I felt kind of silly. And then when that first set came in, I was just like, 
Oh, good lad. I saw Harry took in or tr- attempt to, to uh, took into a pretty significant barrel, and there was so much debris because it's rainy season here. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a lot of like Rigger. sticks and logs. There's a lot of water. sticks, a lot of logs. Yeah, and it just there was barely any water in the wave. It was just like a forest. Yeah, uh, that happened to me on one. I, uh, the, I was going over on my board. I've got a big ding in the bottom of my board. Uh, yeah, you the, the board stick. just stopped dead. Like <laughs> a big log was under the fin. The fin bounced over it, and then the leash got wrapped around the log. And uh, I just went straight over the handlebars. <laughs> I'm not sure that's ever happened to me before. So into the news then. Trace have recently teamed up with uh, Surfline, so that the data that you get when you're surfing is then being sent through to Surfline to help them build the forecast, so which is quite cool. And I that was really cool. I bounced a message back through to David, who we spoke to before, David Lockshin. And I, was, I asked him if, if it was planned, if it was a, a possibility to basically use surfers as floating wave buoys, you know, bouncing up and down. all Because Trace knows if you're paddling or not, so it knows if you're just sitting stationary mm-hmm. on board and it's bobbing up and down the swell. Could they then use that to send some data through to Surfline that they could use for nearshore modeling because we don't have any wave buoys down here you know the nearest one is is off baja mexico are we talking about live data here or is this no it wouldn't be live right now the way it basically works is based on meteorological forecasts the computers predict what they think the waves will do and then if you're lucky and you live in europe or north america or or various other places there are wave buoys in the in the ocean and so the forecast says seven feet 18 seconds Two or three days later, the waves actually arrive and the wave buoy bobs up and down. And it's not quite that. It's five foot, 15 seconds. That data feeds back into the computer. And the next time the computer encounters a similar situation, it makes a more accurate prediction. Mm-hmm. And so that this idea that you could, uh, you could then use, you know, there's no wave buoys anywhere in Central America. Mm-hmm. But there's probably 10 or 15 people using Trace each day. So if that could feed back in. I said, out of interest, is it possible or planned to use trace surfers as pseudo-wave buoys? Uh, could the movement of the trace unit when not paddling feed into Surfline's wave modelling? Uh, Dave Lockshin, by the way, listeners, is the CEO of Trace. Yeah, and he said, that's certainly an interesting idea, and that's the most I'm saying on that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. So it's, certainly, really not, cool. it's certainly not something they're going to be doing right now, but it's that I'm taking from that, and Dave, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm taking from that that it's something they're going to experiment with. So two big events over the, the, the intervening break. Well, obviously, we've had the uh, Fiji Pro, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. But then two other events that have run on the side. The first was the Cape Fear event, the Red Bull Cape Fear uh, event, which was insane. The second was the Big Wave World Tour event at Puerto Escondido, which was also insane to watch. Tell you what, those are two waves that when I watched the highlights of it and was watching the live stream, I don't have any interest to surf at size. No. Like Cape Fear and P- Big Porto look like a nightmare. Yeah. Actually, just talking about the session that we had, I was thinking like, man, like we, we properly charged some pretty solid waves. <laughs> and then I went <laughs> and then I went in and I logged on to Escondido and I was like, oh. And there's Grant Twiggy Baker just pulling in over and over again and not seeming that concerned when he doesn't make it. And then, you know, making a few as well. He was really yeah. amazing. So I was, I was thinking quite a lot about like, like a couple of the barrels we pulled into. I was like, man, this is like, there's a lot of room in these. But what do you think it feels like to pull in at Porto Escondido where you could literally fit this living room 
That was incredible. In the barrel there. And, and what, it, you know, and you see them on, on the stadium afterwards and they've got the boards resting behind them. Yeah. You know, how cool is that? And those huge, boards are like, huge. what were they, like 10 foot boards? Or yeah. Foot? I think they ride slightly smaller boards at Porto just because of the curve of the wave is so aggressive. Uh-huh. That they, I think, like Albilera was on like an 8-2, I think. He always rides very short though. I think a lot of the guys were on nine foot plus boards. They the interesting one they said is that almost all the competitors were riding quads at Porto. Oh, I could definitely um, see that. To to get the extra speed, they said there's there's no, there's almost nobody riding a thruster now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see that. that. The, the thing I found interesting board wise was the Cape Fear event. I mean, the guys were just using standard short boards. They didn't even mm-hmm. I I even saw guys just on standard squash tails. They yeah, weren't even the, riding like pins. The WSL banned any you know member surfers from surfing in that event so a lot of that guys the guys in that event were like really blue collar surfers one of them was quoted i forget who it was but one of them was quoted saying that that was actually a board he had shaped for huntington beach for the qs the year before and that was just all he had it's a pretty different board than i would choose to well, surf there was, that. Uh, yeah for the cape the cape fear event was was interesting listeners if you haven't seen go to uh, go and check the highlights i'll put them into the show notes if i can but they are red bull videos which are a bit difficult to embed sometimes so but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll link to the we'll certainly link highlights to and the red bull one and they're both worth watching they're both very well worth watching but the interesting thing with the cape fear event was as as asha said that the WSL banned any of their athletes from competing, which you can kind of understand. I mean, they're trying to build a, uh, a tour around their athletes and they don't want them running off and, and surfing for other events. But what it meant was about half the guys in that Cape Fear event were just totally unsponsored. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just the local guys. Yeah. Am I right in saying that Russell Birk? How do we pronounce this surname? Birk? Birk? But should we go with Birk? <laughs> um, am I right in saying that Russell Birk... Um, shaped his own board for the event. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I read that. Yeah. That's pretty a cool. Pretty cool accolade, yeah. 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 So you were saying about how there's no WSL surfers were allowed in the Cape Fear, the Red Bull event. And mm-hmm. it seems like Red Bull are going to be running more of these events, I would have thought, especially after mm-hmm. the success of that one. It seems like that they can probably meet a pretty good compromise if, you know, everyone just puts their egos aside. I think that just from a purely business point of view, it's of benefit to both brands to work together. You know, what about if the WSL surfers are in it, but you know, it's just the WSL are given a nod or, yeah. you know, when they're hitting the production on. value of Red Bull stuff is really high too. Yeah. Like they always put on a really great webcast. Um, their, their player is a lot better than the WSL one I found. Uh, those have a great media team. The highlights packages is, is amazing. They don't yeah. put out quite as much content as the WSL, but it's a little more curated. Uh-huh. So I, it personally interests me a little more. I don't know. And now with Red Bulls teaming up with GoPro, there could be some interesting footage uh-huh. as a result. I think just the big thing is that I, f- I find it very hard to get behind. You know, you can understand WSL saying to the guys on the world tour, look, you can't surf in any unsanctioned events. Those guys are making, like, just for showing up, they get, I think it's $5,000 mm-hmm. just for showing up. That's more or less, you know, if you travel on a budget, you should be able to do the world tour just on showing up and losing every losing your round two heat. Uh huh. Um, depending on how big your entourage is. Well, t- depending on, but but you know, I I feel like at five thousand dollars an event, I could probably make the world tour work. I wouldn't be staying in luxury co- accommodation. I might not have as many boards as I'd like, but I I would make that work. How many statisticians 
Could you afford with that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. That's a tricky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's but a nice throw forward to the uh, feature we're doing later in the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that. Um, so that, but with the Big Wave World Tour, like it's a totally different thing. The last two years, the world champion's been decided after them only running two events. And half the guys on the world tour don't have enough sponsorship money to be able to, to compete. You know, they're, they're not making enough money to fly around the world to compete on events at 72 hours notice. And then the WSL is telling them they're not allowed to compete in any other unsanctioned events. And that's like, that doesn't work. You, you've, got to, you've got to be able to be providing job security before you can tell people they can't have a second job. Mm-hmm. And, and even for those top guys, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, by the way, Harry, but even for those guys, you know, let's take John John as just an example. Mm-hmm. If John John is surfing in that Red Bull event, like more people are going to want to watch the Red Bull event and tune in because I'm sure there are spikes in viewing figures when the big names heats come on. Of course. And like that's yeah. only going to happen. It's going to raise awareness of John John and, you know, he can be wearing a WSL something or other or there can be a WSL advertising slot in there you know, or the commentators could have to give a nod to the WSL when they're talking about him. Yeah. Um, but Red Bull are going to get more viewing figures. John John's profile goes up and the WSL gets a bunch of, um, you know, mentions and, and airtime on a Red Bull event. I just, I just don't see a downside. No. It's a bit like the Olympics pre mid nineties, uh, wouldn't allow professional athletes to compete. So actually we had a letter about that. Because we mentioned it in the last podcast. Yeah, like basketball was was terrible in the Olympics. And then as soon as they allowed NBA basketball players to play, um, viewership went up internationally for the NBA because people from all around the world saw these players and like, wow, they're amazing. And viewership for the Olympics went way up. Um, on that same subject, now I don't know how much truth there is in this or whether it was a little bit of an internet joke, but uh, in- the English football team recently lost yesterday or a couple of days ago to Iceland mm-hmm. and they were making jokes about Roy Hodgson, the manager being so well paid and really high profile manager and the Icelandic manager is a part-time dentist. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if that's true. I really hope that's true. Yeah, it would be great. <laughs> Um, yeah, we actually had a, an email from Jason at Blue Reef Surfing, I think in Brazil, who got in touch to correct us on a couple of, of things that we mentioned about the Olympics and about professionalism in the Olympics and where it all came by. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much for your email, Jason. Uh, and yeah, he mentioned the, uh, the varying degrees of, of professionalism in, uh, in the Olympics and that it's, it's still different from each sport. We always appreciate it, listeners, when you write in and correct us. Yes. We, are, we, all, like, um, we all like learning stuff. And we do get stuff wrong a lot. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's always, it's always a bit of a mad scramble fact-checking everything we do in the podcast. So I, I think we should just make a statement right now that you should never take anything we say as definitely true without double-checking it before you re-quote it to mm-hmm. other people. Yeah, I would confirm that. And, uh, and please do write in if we ever get anything wrong. So on the, on the side of contest, what did you guys think about the Fiji Pro? We're, uh, we're a bit late to it, but it's got to be the, gotta be the best contest ago. this year. I just loved watching uh, Taj and John John. Yeah, that was my favorite heat. Yeah, I pretty much that that was that was the heat of the contest for me. Yeah. There was a lot of pretty spectacular heat. That that was the heat of the contest. contest, and it made me a little sad that that heat happened as early on in the contest as it yeah, did. Round because three. in any other any other heat of round three, Taj would have smashed through with that heat score, and in that heat, he just came up against the very on form. John John Florence and you know it was astronomically the highest heat score 
So I, I tell you event. what was a little heartbreaking. I mean, Taj came out and he seemed really stoked. He was yeah. like, that's one of the best heats I've ever had. Um, and, you know, he was just over the moon. Mm-hmm. I think he was stoked with the whole thing. But what was just a little heartbreaking watching it as a, I'm a big Taj fan and a big John John fan, but by default, I wanted Taj to win just because, yeah, you know, of course. last Swan event song. and all that. Yeah, and he came out of that, that last barrel that he got and then did that kind of backhand top turn and just kind of like wobbled and came off his board. And all he needed was another... He needed a tiny fraction of a point. I think to, he to needed a, like a 9.46 and he got a 9.2. Yeah, yeah, so he needed like 0.2 extra. Yeah. And, you know, had he just completed that backhand top turn that he could have probably completed 999 times out of 1,000, he probably would have made the heat. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah, that's the way it goes. Very tough. So, yeah, on the on the Fiji Pro, just to bring those of you up to date that haven't uh, been watching, Gabriel Medina beat Matt Wilkinson in the final, which leaves Matt Wilkinson still in first place, but with everybody else catching up quite quickly. This guy's just... I don't well, know, Wilco's, Wilco's pretty far ahead of everyone. He's, I got, he's the only surfer that's not counting a throwaway score, so his lead is going to be way exaggerated. What did you guys think about that final? Because it looked... For me, it looked Matt Wilkinson paddled out at a massive disadvantage. Yeah, he looked he, like he, he was kind of gashed. got the shit kicked out of him in the semi-final against Ace Bucken. Like that, they were getting big wash through sets. He was getting caught inside, duck dive, duck dive, duck dive, and they gave him, you know, twenty-five, thirty minutes to catch his breath before the final. But he looked gassed before he hit the water. Yeah, he looked done. And then Gabriel Medina had had over an hour to recover from his semi-final and hadn't had all those wash-through sets in his semi-final. Yeah. And just paddled... I mean, more than anything else, just paddled circles around Matt Wilkinson. How, how would you have arranged it? I mean, I agree with I you. D- yeah, I, d- I don't know that there's yeah, a solution. I don't know if there was much of a good way to solve that problem just because his his heat, you know, it was the second one and it happened to have, you know, a big spike in the swell. They got... I mean, they got brutalized in that heat and then in the final, they kind of did again. Yeah. There's a bunch of wash-throughs in the final. I don't know. I would have been gassed. But a second place, I was so impressed with Wilco. Mm. I think Medina surfed better. I mean, I think he yeah, I think the, the right person won won overall. You know, Medina was very on form throughout the whole event. Medina um, never really looked like he wasn't going to win. Yeah, like, how were those airs he was doing over the shish kebabs? End I mean, section? he approaches the wave way differently than anyone else. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's like a, a totally him. If you put him and Slater next to each other, they're both surfing the wave amazing, but they're taking totally different styles and, and approaches and it was it was great actually just seeing Slater back you know what I mean yeah. he hasn't really he hasn't really been here all year and then suddenly in this contest he, he looked like he was back he didn't get as far as I would have liked to see him go but, but that, would, that was what we said in the last in the last podcast well, it's, what, it's what you said you are like the oracle of uh, surf well no but I, I don't think I don't think I'm the only one saying that like give Slater good barreling waves and yeah. he's as good as the, the, the best in the world because his his prediction his his ability to look at those waves coming in and know which ones are going to be the, the good scores is off the chart and his his barrel riding ability is enormous so give him good pipe give him good fiji he's gonna throw down with everybody else but but all the other contests we've had so far this year he was always going to struggle i'm going to throw a prediction out there actually i think as well if you give him good jbay that's somewhere that he, Ooh, can potentially is, he do is he going on your really, fantasy really team well. oh yeah uh, I don't know. I need to. I need to look at my fancy team. <laughs> Did you guys? Um, <laughs> it might have slipped. It slipped down my to-do list on each day, and uh, I, I'm not sure where I am at the moment. Are we so going to look at the fancy surfer later in the show? Yeah, we'll have a quick. Uh, 
Surfline did a really cool feature on the surfboards that the semifinalists were on. So mm-hmm. it had Ace Buckins, uh, Mendinas, Slaters, and then Wilkos. And they're on pretty short boards. They were they were all on six O's to six ones. Yeah, they I think they were they were sort of universally riding about two inches more than they normally would on a standard shortboard. Which given that they were paddling into what, ten to fifteen foot face cloud break? Yeah. Pretty it's pretty solid. bold. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how somewhere around the late nineties, early noughties, surfers really started wanting to prioritize maneuvering in the barrel and sacrificing getting into the wave earlier. Mm-hmm. I think it was a little later than that. I mean, the when was when did Slater paddle out on that wizard sleeve? 2008? Yeah, that was late. 2008, 2009. I mean, so that was really the that that was the the real start of that that shorter board in performance waves. That and John John. Yeah, I mean, I guess they were still right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I guess they were still riding high six somethings out at pipe. In yeah. the early noughties, weren't they? Yeah. Your your step up is basically an early nineties or mid late nineties uh, <laughs> pipe step up. Yeah, it's it's like it's really it feels so funny paddling around on that six six. It's a K step up, and it's it like was, six six by seventeen. Our friend Carrie Ann found it in the uh, Channel Island warehouse in California for me when I was meeting her on the way to Tahiti, and I just needed something a bit bigger. And it was already kind of pretty yellow, but had never been surfed. So I sort of imagined it had been like left outside and they'd sort of dusted some cobwebs off it and pulled it out and gone, oh, I can have this one. Does it still have Ocean Pacific stickers on it? <laughs> hot tuna or something like that? It has a, uh... I, have a, I have a friend who, who got a hot tuna tattoo on his arm in the early 90s when he was Ooh. 16 and he still has it now. Strong. He has Strong. an OAM trackpad. Nice. <laughs> with air bubble arch pad. Mm. <laughs> I could see you getting a full... Uh, deck pad over your whole board and kind of pulling it off i don't know i don't know i feel like it i'm if I, in costa rica i'm just in board shorts too much that would oh, just tear true. the skin off my chest yeah your nips would not be enjoying that i don't know I, I, I'd, I'd try it but i don't know i don't know the function of it because wax just works pretty well and doesn't give me a bad rash i reckon if you were surfing somewhere where you're in a wetsuit all the time it oh, would make more sense look very cool i probably have a black surfboard too. maybe we'll do a little Surf Simile Iceland trip one day and we can deck pad the boards up. I'm yeah. going in October. You I are going in October. A, a reconnaissance. Oh, that's right. You're going to go whizzing around on a helicopter, aren't I you? I am indeed, yeah. Um, just to bring us back to, to Fiji, I guess the one thing we didn't touch on was um, Slater pushing Wiggly Dantas into the, uh, over the falls. Did you then see the interview that he gave afterwards? And he came in and he said... Yeah, that was for Connor. That's for Connor and um, Michelle. And then he had a bit of an Instagram shout out about it as well. He's yeah. like, look, I like Wiggly, but man, he surfs like a deck in a heat. <laughs> Basically. And I was like, well, you know, he's making up for, I don't know. Not, not everyone has the talent of Slater. You know, he well, I mean, he wants to win heats. So again, for listeners that, that didn't see this. So uh, Wiggly Dantas managed to make it through two heats, first against Connor Coffin and then against Michelle Perez by forcing interferences. Um, the way that uh, surfing works is is that you have a priority system and the surfer with priority can take off on whatever they like and the other surfer can't get in the way and Wiggly used the priority perfectly and f- f- came from behind in both heats by forcing an interference and what that means is that the the other surfer loses their second score. Slater has used interference tactics on people more than just about anybody else. Yeah, I would, yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um, and uh, but yeah, he he decided to he, he pretty aggressively pushed like backpedaled 
Wiggly Dantis until he went over the falls at Cloudbreak. Slater's, <laughs> Slater's getting a bit of an edge on him in yeah. his old age. He's uh, remember how then in the early two thousands it was like Andy Irons was Darth Vader and Slater was like the White Knight in that white all white wetsuit. And now Slater, you know, I think he's getting a little bashing people. Did you guys see him after he he got one wave in his semifinal or something? And he was like all pumped, like cursing, like oh, I broke my. Like cursing about his board, and I was like, "Man, Slater's fired up." <laughs> Maybe he needs to do a little more Wim Hof breathing. I know. Yeah, <laughs> someone's letting him down. <laughs> um, so that uh, leads us into the next event for the men's is going to be J Bay, uh, which is starting next week. Uh, it should be pretty exciting. Mick Fanning's back in. See if any sharks turn up to eat him, and they've Thumbs. got some weird buoys mounted out in the water to try and uh, detect sharks. Thumbs up or thumbs down on the Mick Fanning commercial that they showed through all of Fiji, where it's just like a really dark silhouette of him. It's like, we were always coming back. Ah, finally, someone's done a worse Australian accent than me. I don't know. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, th- I, think, I think as a media company, if you get handed that event, nobody getting hurt, nobody getting injured, but worldwide coverage of someone having a pretty close call with a very big shark, you've be stupid not to play off that mm-hmm. i think just from an advertising creative point of view you've got to design adverts differently if the viewer is going to be watching them four or five times an hour for like two lots of eight hours on the trot you know if you're, if you're doing an advert for tv and someone is going to see it once or twice a week have a catchy melody you know what i mean yeah. like have a few little funny catchphrases where once people see it two or three times they know what's coming Fine. If you're going to play an advert like every hour, every half hour, all the yeah. way through the day, you really want to like craft it differently. And one thing I loved about that advert, aside from you know the dark, shadowy implications of the grey men in the water, was just that there wasn't any music in it. And by contrast, the Samsung advert, you know, when when they have the girl looking at the dog, going, "You've got more followers than me," yeah, and then the couple kissing in the nightclub, yeah, and we were just talking, like. I really, it really put me off Samsung a lot. But you know, actually, sorry, I'm going to go on a run now. But do you know what really, really annoyed me about Samsung? Is that we have a Samsung TV, which we just bought to have in the resort. It's a smart TV. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And the event was on. And we were like, okay, great. Let's put the event on the TV. Can a Samsung smart TV play an event off the Samsung Galaxy Tour? Of course it can't. It's got the wrong software and it's not compatible. Yeah. Oh. Shame on you, Samsung. <laughs> Go and stand in the corner along with the whole of the UK and think about what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of segued, kind of wedged Brexit in there. I'm interested to see what happens with the Brexit, actually. Because it's not... It's only a referendum. It's not, you know, the, the the parliament is sovereign. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to listen to the result of a referendum. Mm-hmm. That's quite, I've got a lot to say about that. Do you want to get into it? No, not okay. on this show. I'm sure none of our <laughs> listeners are in any way, shape or form interested. I'm going to be starting a side podcast listeners called Brexit, What Rue Thinks. <laughs> you can find on <laughs> iTunes later today. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk a little bit about algorithms to surf by and i've kind of stolen the name a little bit from a book that came out recently called algorithms to live by by two guys called brian christian and thomas griffith so brian christian is a highly acclaimed author of two books about how computers are changing the way we think uh, about what it means to be human and thomas griffith is the director of the computational cognitive science lab and the institute of cognitive and brain sciences at the university of california 
That's a big title. It is a big title. I had to practice saying computational cognitive science lab several times. <laughs> a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, so the basic idea is that there are algorithms which have been developed by necessity to optimize the running of computers and software, uh, which everyday Luddites like us can actually use in our daily lives on our wetware. Do you like that word wetware? I heard this neuroscientist saying it in an interview recently. You now have like hardware and software and wetware being like the meat in between your ears that you do your thinking with. Uh, so before I get into what this has to do with surfing, I just want to say what I really like about this idea. There's two things. Firstly, I love how computer sciences are not really to do with how computers work. They're to do with how people work. So, for example, when you're trying to figure out which bit of information the computer to put into the RAM and which bit into the hard drive, so that the hard drive might be like 500 gigs, but is really slow to access. Mm -hmm. The RAM might be like 8 gigs but you can access it really quickly. So yeah. when the computer's trying to run faster, it needs to know where to put information. And the way it decides where to put it is it has to say, is Harry next going to carry on doing the show notes or is he going to get distracted by Facebook and watching, you know, dog videos or... 100%, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's going to get distracted hats. by a dog video. <laughs> no, I'm not saying... The dog video is not, but the one that distracts me most at the moment is the um, smarter everyday videos. When these guys are trying to write these algorithms, they're trying to work out if you, listener, are like Harry, going to get distracted by that video or whether you're going to get distracted by something else. And so they're trying to write algorithms that are allowing for this huge, messy, complicated human behavior. And I just think that's, that's really cool. Um, the second thing that I really like about it is that the more we learn about how our brains work, the more we find that our worldview and therefore our decision-making process, which is how I'm going to link this back around to surfing again, is really based on a narrative way of thinking rather than a logical way of thinking. So like, I'm just going to give you an example of what I mean by that. This is, this is like a classic um, uh, logic problem, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's this uh, girl and she's super intelligent, very well educated. She's very interested in the social sciences and social justice. When she's younger, her heroes are Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. When she's older, she marches, uh, she marches in women's rights uh, activist groups when she's at university. Later, she goes on to work in a bank, right? And the question is, which of these statements about her is more likely to be true? A, that she's a bank teller, or B, that she's a bank teller who is also active in the LGBT rights movement? Uh, well, logically, that she's a bank teller. Okay, so Harry is the exceptional part of the population who probably already knows about this problem. Yeah, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of reading Thinking Fast and Slow. So oh, that's a really great book. That's a really great book, listeners. <laughs> it's an entire book made up of those sorts of little problems. So, so if you ask the general population that question then about 80% of people will say, well, it's much more likely that she's a bank teller and also active in, in the LGBT rights movement. I like how when you ask that question, there's a silent moment where Will and I didn't say anything. And then Harry went, oh, well, obviously she's a bank teller. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to be the first one to step into this trap. <laughs> Um, and the idea is that what we do is we tell ourselves a story about what kind of person this is. And we mm -hmm. say, oh, she's interested in human rights and equality. Therefore, she's you know, going to be doing this as well as just doing a job. But actually, whenever you have two uh, characteristics of something described, and one is A and one is A plus B, mm -hmm. logically, A always has to mathematically be more likely to be true. Because there's one less variable sort of thing. Is that, exactly. is that the logic? Yeah, yeah, you don't even need to know anything about her uh -huh. or, or what the variables are. All you need to know is that there's either one variable or one variable plus a second variable, yeah. and the first one and is always more likely to be correct. The more, the more variables you put in, the lower the odds of all of those coming together, and therefore... Yeah, so... 
this is a good example of why intuition or our gut often lets us down. And it's also why we're not even aware of how much our intuition lets us down because we tell ourselves this story about having good gut instincts about something, about, you know, about waves coming in or what maneuvers to do. And then whenever we're shown to be right, then confirmation bias kicks in and we remember the hits and we forget the misses. So a couple of really good examples in surfing. I posted a picture, I think the day before yesterday on Instagram and Facebook that was, it was a really nice one just of, I think, Will um, and uh, Francella and some of our guests from last week just kind of sitting out and they're kind of going over a wave and looking out for the horizon. And, and I wrote underneath it, or there was like a wave coming and you couldn't see behind it. And I wrote <laughs> something like just collectively wondering what's behind the next wave. And there was a ton of comments underneath it with people going, always the third wave of the set, always the fifth wave of the set, always the seventh wave of the set. You know, and actually... While you can predict swells, it's impossible to predict individual waves. Just like you can predict a storm coming, but you can't predict individual clouds. Mm -hmm. There's just way too much complexity. But people have these ideas. Okay, the third wave of the set's always the biggest. And then every time the third wave of the set is the biggest, they remember. And every time it's not, they forget. And confirmation bias, yada, yada, yada. Another example is thinking that the waves go flat as the tide turns. You know, uh, I think we, we were talking about this the other day when we were sitting out at uh, that reef break that we were surfing and it was right on the high tide and you know already mm -hmm. people were going oh it's it's like lulling on the high tide mm -hmm. um or as the tide turns rather and there's just no plausible reason why that should happen but again you always remember when it does happen you don't remember when it doesn't happen yeah so in the book brian and thomas talk about a bunch of different examples but i just wanted to highlight one which i think is especially significant for surfers um, especially competitive surfers and this is called the 37 percent rule and it's an, uh, it's an aspect of what we call optimal stopping theory. Okay, so here's the problem. A competitive surfer's got one good wave already and is looking for a second. Now, it'd be great if you could wait until the end of the heat and see what was the best wave that eventually came in and then rewind time and go on that one wave, but obviously you can't. I say obviously, but if you listen to the way that surfers and commentators talk about wave selection, you'd think that you could. They always talk about what was the wave that the surfer should have gone on, what they should talk about is what strategy a surfer should employ in order to maximize the likelihood that they would get the best wave, which mm -hmm. is different. So just to give you an example, if Harry and I were rolling dice and the winner is whoever rolls the highest number and Harry's tactic is I'm going to roll the dice once and my tactic is I'm going to roll the tw dice twice and go with whichever number's higher, I'm twice as likely to win as Harry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it could be that Harry will roll a six and then I roll a two and a three and then Harry wins but I nevertheless still had the best strategy. And that is the that's the confusion that I think often happens with coaches and commentators and yeah. surfers. So this has been studied extensively in the fields of applied probability and statistics and decision theory. And it's often illustrated by scenarios like the marriage problem, the sultran's dowry problem, the fussy suitor problem, and the secretary problem. And actually, now that I look at that list, uh, it's pretty misogynistic, which is actually perhaps a bit of an insight into the minds of <laughs> statisticians over the last 50 years. Uh, so I'm going to use the example that Christian and Griffith give in their book. So I want you to imagine you're trying to choose an apartment, right? You have three options. You have to decide on the spot if you want the apartment. You can't go back to it later. And you have no information about the apartments that you haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Given that you're looking for an apartment, Asher, I thought this was quite a good example. Perfect. Uh, okay, so if you decide whatever happens, you're going to go with the first apartment, then what are your chances of picking the best apartment? 33.3. Nice. Yeah, one in three. Right. But if you decide to reject the first apartment, 
and then pick the second apartment if it's better than the, th the first one, but otherwise go with the third one, now your chances of picking the best apartment have gone up from 33.3 recurring to 50%, right? You mm -hmm. still might not get the best apartment, but you've got the best strategy for picking the best apartment. Now you stand a 50-50 chance. Yeah. And that, this, and if, if any of you listeners are kind of into logic problems and stuff, this might like hark back to the uh, Monty Hall problem as well, which is based on a similar kind of thing. So uh, in this example, you're rejecting the first of the three apartments. So you're, reject, you're rejecting 33% of your options before switching strategies to a picking strategy rather than an observing strategy. So the first apartment, you're just observing, you're not going to pick it. And then after seeing the first one, you're switching strategies to a picking strategy. If you have four apartments, the percentage goes slightly up from 33. And as the number of apartments in this case gets closer to infinity, the percentage before you switch strategies from observing to selecting gets closer and closer to 37%, which is why we call it the 37% rule. Mm -hmm. You still with me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. So you're not guaranteed to get the best apartment, but you are guaranteed to have the best chance of picking the best apartment. And therefore, the law of averages means that if you adopt this strategy over your entire lifetime and were consistently picking apartments for some reason, then the advantage you would have over someone else who's not using the optimal stopping theory would get bigger and bigger as the years went by. So you might not win in any one instance, but in aggregate, you will. This is... In a way, I suppose picking apartments is a bad example because when you pick a, an apartment, it's a pretty big decision that you spend an awful lot. You're, you're going to invest time into it, but there's an awful lot of decisions where you're, the time's a valuable commodity that you don't necessarily want to invest lots of into every single problem that you have to solve. And so taking this approach with, with those problems would give you an awful lot of extra time over somebody that didn't. Like picking a wave in a heat where time is of the essence and you only have X number of... That is a time very that's a very good segue, actually. That's exactly <laughs> where I'm going. Yeah, and you're right. Like time is a really valuable commodity. Otherwise, what you can do is just look at every single option, yeah. and then you can just pick whatever the best was out of all of the options. Yeah. But yeah, the whole point of this is that you you have limited time. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so, you know, you, you made that connection. That it's it already comes back to like surfing in a heat, and you have to pick a wave, and you've only got a limited amount of time left. Or you know, surfing in a free surf, and you've only got a limited amount of time, but you want to get the best waves that are available available to you so anyone who's really on the ball at this point is going to have connected this back to episode 29 when we talked about being stochastic when you're approached to surfing oh, so you any, have to be really on the ball any listeners who made that connection just just give yourself a good pat on the back <laughs> so a surfer's in a heat and they've got priority they've got one wave under their belts they've got a set amount of time left and they want to catch the best wave in the time remaining so they've got 30 minutes left let's say we'll say 30 minutes just because it makes the math really easy mm -hmm. so you want to spend the first 11 minutes of that 30 minutes 37 percent of it just observing not catching a wave and then as soon as that 37% has expired, then what you want to do is catch the best wave that comes to you that's better than any of the waves that have come along in the preceding 11 minutes. Or sorry, in the first 11 minutes. Could you have used the heat before as an observational period and then have a better grasp on your heat? Because I mean... Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't actually think of that. I mean, you know, this gets more complicated as you start introducing the fact that you need two waves, not one, which yeah, is why I was I also gave thinking, that scenario. Where would you put the point of the first wave as a good wave? So if you said you caught one good wave and you need a second score, where do you draw the line as what, it, you know, it could be a 10 
or you know maybe it might be heat where a four is a pretty good score right so that's true so all this is allowing for is trying to get the highest scoring the wave with the highest scoring potential any mm -hmm. one wave in any set time period okay it also doesn't allow for whether you want to be blocking the other guy getting on waves mm -hmm. for example if he's got a 10 and a four compared to if he's got two sevens you might yeah. want to adopt a different strategy. So there are more variables coming into it. And actually, in the book, Algorithms to Live By, they start going into how you can allow for a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. Not in surfing contexts, unfortunately, yeah. or in apartment choosing contexts. It's really interesting. The only thing I would say, but everything I've read from forecasters and you know, Surfline and things like that, is that there is generally some rhythm to the, to the way that the sets come and go. They do actually form up and... You can't necessarily call it to the second as to when a set's going to come, but you can make quite solid predictions as to when to expect a bunch of waves and, and roughly, you know, an idea of how many waves there are going to be in it. As far as I'm aware, you can talk about average distances between sets throughout a day, mm -hmm. but you can't predict the number of waves in any one set or which wave will be biggest, you know? And you get rogue waves, and then you get seven waves, and then you get three waves. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you can certainly say the average gap between the sets is, or, or not even at the end of yeah. the day, sorry, but it could be like after watching the surf eyes, you could say the average gap between the sets is yeah. um, 10 minutes. So right. you could make that on that kind of scale. But what? I, what but that would then surely have to. Is, okay, I've got, I've got 30 minutes left, so there's probably going to be one or two sets coming in but it's going to be very, very difficult to know, well, is it one or is it two? And it's yeah. exactly that decision that wins and loses heats. So right. it's that scale that we're talking about. But I think that what you say is a really good point because this theory is making the assumption that what's coming in is random, Yeah. right? So that mm -hmm. it's based on that. And as soon as it's not random, then you need to kind of take other things into account. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you throw the whole idea of trying to be logical out the window. It just means, okay, I need to tweak my algorithm a little bit and on the whole as things get more and more complicated at some point people tend to say oh well let's just throw it all out the window uh, the whole idea of trying to have like a bit of a system that I'm working to and I, I guess what I would advocate is like allow for those variables even if you can't put a number on them just knowing what the parameters are mm -hmm. can actually really help you make a, an informed decision and it's really good to go in the water with a, a, a thought-out specific time strategy where you're observing and then you're making a choice. And even if you think, okay, I'm going to give myself my 11 minutes. Now, if a double overhead set comes in during that 11 minutes, I'm going to ditch the strategy and go on the double overhead set because there's only been like one of those all day. Yeah. But if it doesn't come in, I'm going to stick with my strategy. Okay, so now again, you've still got a plan that give, still gives you the, the kind of the calmness. So, you know, when you talk about that strategy and you imagine yourself being in that situation, knowing you have to get the best wave, the first thing, I don't know about you guys, but the first thing for me that kicks in is, again, that like narrative part of your brain that's hardwired in there that goes, okay, I've got 30 minutes left. I just need an eight-point ride. A perfect wave comes in, but it's in the first 11 minutes, so I ignore it. Then nothing comes in for the rest of the heat. And then I feel like I just missed winning out on a world title because of this stupid theory. Yeah, that's pretty tough. Stupid podcast, right? And like, again, the, you know, this theory doesn't guarantee that you'll win in any one instance. All it does is it means that over the course of a lifetime, that stochastic approach, that aggregate means that you'll come out on top. Having the best process doesn't always guarantee the best result on the day, but over a lifetime it will. And on the occasions when you inevitably do you lose, at least you'll sleep better.
You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. It's not a problem that any of us have, but I know that for a lot of you listeners, uh, you surf in colder conditions. Myself and Rue and Will all grew up surfing in much colder conditions, and something that's become increasingly an issue is, uh, or people at least have become increasingly aware of, is surfer's ear. Actually, I still do get quite annoying ear infections. Apparently, because of the north wind that I used to have constantly blowing in my right ear while facing west coaching in the England in mm-hmm. England, that would make sense. Which mm-hmm. grown the bone shut and stopping my ear draining properly. But I expect we're about to find out more about how that works and what to do about it. Yeah, you are indeed. We're um, very lucky. We've got Christian Dietrich, who is one of the guys behind Surfers Ears, which is a, a, an earplug designed for surfing, so it doesn't mess with your equilibrium and it doesn't mess with the sound coming in and out of your ears and they just won the Simmer Award last year for design innovation so uh, we've got Christian uh, on to have a chat with us about about that product. So Christian thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Harry it's a pleasure. And you're in Sweden is that right? Yeah I'm in in the very southern part of Sweden a place called uh, Kasabaya pretty good surf spot actually. Oh fantastic so presumably it doesn't go dark at all there at the moment. No, it's actually it's it's bright until 11.30 at least right now so you can you can have long Evening sessions. <laughs> Pretty fantastic. <laughs> These days. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Christian, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and your background. And sure. Where... Uh, short introduction. So, um, born in Sweden, surfing since 25 years in different forms, uh, also kitesurfing and windsurfing. A- engineering in the background, so always very cu- curious about how things work and how you can make things better. And that's, uh, I think, the foundation for why we came here. Um, I've been uh, been working in the sports industry for some time, uh, developing kiteboards. I've had a kiteboard brand and surf brand myself for quite some time. I've uh, I've worked in Nokia a bunch of years, uh, working in many places around the world, China, San Diego, uh, Taipei, Japan. So I've been around a lot and seen different places and seen different cultures. And I think that's sort of it's helping out when you, when you when you're working as an entrepreneur because you have to have that sort of open mindset to to be able to work that way, the way we do. Uh, always been super curious about sort of the, the mix of, of, of doing stuff that you're passionate about and trying to make that into a living. And I think we found something pretty great here with the surfers. We're, we're a small team, we're three people, but we, we've been sort of one person was in Hawaii, I was in Barbados and the other one was in Denmark and we made it work. So that, that sort of setup is really what thrills me and what, what uh, what I value going forward and I think we're going to try to keep that even as we go. No, that's fantastic. That's great. That's awesome. So I guess let's just start off. What exactly is, is Surfer's Ear? I think most people have heard the terminology then they've, they've you know, heard the idea that being in cold water regularly, it seems to lead to problems and ear infections and things like that. But what's the actual uh, mechanics behind the Surfer's Ear? Yeah, so uh, surface here or exostosis, as it's called, it's it's actual bone growth in their canal. So uh, what happens when you surf or swim or just spend a lot of time in cold water? Mm-hmm. Over time, the ear protects itself by building uh, extra bone in their canal. So and that's that's a mechanism uh, to to exactly why it's happening. I I'm not sure people know, but but it is happening, and you can you can see it um, statistically in people spending time in cold water over time. Uh, maybe it's uh, the sensation is, is bad enough to create some sort of uh, f- you know chemical reaction in the body to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, the the, the 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 ear canal is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So if if you've surfed for for twenty years, there's a big chance that you have 
uh, especially in colder waters below 17 degrees, something like that, you have a good chance of having developed some degree of surface here. I have it myself. So I, I, I went to the doctor about, I think it was five years ago, and they offered me to do the operation uh, mm-hmm. because I had such a severe case of surface here that it's, it's in, in the very end stages. And for me, that meant that uh, it's it's such a tight hole in the air canal. In the it's sort of in the middle of the air canal, so there's a pocket inside, and stuff can get mm-hmm. in there, but it can't really get out. Right. So once the the bone growth has has closed the hole up, you're starting to get a lot of a lot of dirty water getting exactly. trapped in that hole, and then and then causing problems. Yes. So that's that's a big thing. Uh, so so that's sort of the medical aspect to surface here. That it's really a it's really a physical thing it's 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 something that you, you need to you need to do a medical surgery to get rid of it and it's quite a nasty surgery uh, where you have to sort of cut away your ear and drill out or chisel out the, the bone and then stitch it back on and, and there there is some risk involved as well you can you know have reduced hearing or you can they can even touch a nerve that uh, you know can make your face go numb partially uh, so th- there's right. some risk to it as well even though i think they're they're quite good at it today yeah, and so, and am I right in saying that surfer's ear is pretty pretty much the same as, as what they call swimmer's ear sometimes that, that swimmers deal with? No, it's actually a different thing. So swimmer's ear is, is more of a hypersensitivity okay. uh, issue. So when you spend a lot of time in the water, not, not only cold water, but water in general, mm-hmm. uh, you can develop hypersensitivity in the skin in the ear canal and you get rash sort of in your ear and, and eventually you get, uh, yeah, I don't know what you call that in English actually, but... but um, like exam in Swedish? Uh, okay, e- like eczema. Yeah, maybe it's eczema. Like a, a like skin irritation that that, exactly, that is itchy. Exactly. Yeah. And if you Google swimmers here, you can see some really nasty pictures on, on, on people <laughs> having that in, in their ear. So that's not really connect, connected to the bone growth. It's more of the sensitivity in your in, in your ear, and you right. probably have both as a surfer. Right. You could have a combination of the two. Yes. And so you, you said that the, the surfer's ear is really its exposure to water below 17 degrees centigrade, which uh, for all the, the American listeners, that's, uh, that's about 62, 63 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. I've seen at least some, some, some studies saying that that's where it starts to happen. Um, right. And swimmer's ear can happen in any temperature. In, so that's basically just, just having water in your ear too often can yeah. cause hypersensitivity. So that's, uh, that's a difference, but uh, they're both, uh, both very, very uh, real for surfers and swimmers. Um, yeah. yeah, well, certainly growing, uh, you know, growing up and surfing in the UK, it was, it was something that people were vaguely aware of, and it was a, something that people thought maybe they should be doing something about. Um, yeah. and, and being a, a poor student, I, my, my technique was to just get the sort of blue tack that you used to stick posters up on the wall and shove a load of that in my ear, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is obviously not probably not the best solution. And, no, uh, exactly. But I sort of it, it, it's what I did for many years as well. I, I, yeah. I've been in the water for, for a long time, so 25 years doing different kind of water sports, right? Uh, kite surfing and windsurfing and surfing. And um, I've I didn't start to wear earplugs until I really got issues. That's a problem. I started wearing these uh, formidable silicone plugs, but really uh, it was a pain to lose all the hearing. You, you really, yes. you feel like you're in a, you know, tin can surfing. It's really, it's horrible. And so is it really the case that the, the only way, if you're going to surf in cold water on a regular basis, the only real prevention for surfers' ear is to stop the cold water getting into the ear? 
I would say yes. And I mean, it, it's a little bit happening by itself when you surf with a hood because yep. not as much water gets in, some water gets in, and when it gets in, it doesn't get out. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually, a, it is a problem as well when you're surfing with a hood, but, it, but it's better. But but for sure, I mean, water below 70 degrees, it, it, it happens uh, to people that they get surfers here in, the, in those conditions. So, so uh, I would say yes, that's the only good preventive method. Uh, Eardrops ear and other you know cleaning methods are actually just for cleaning out what's in there it's not really preventing the growth of surface here right so that's that's dealing with the trapped water behind these bony growths and trying to stop the ear infection that that might then come on exactly exactly uh, right. Okay. Interesting. You were saying that you've seen a few different studies that uh, that have shown a, some correlation to, to the surfer's ear and, and preventing it. The, the study was done, I think, about uh, on, on about 300 surfers. Um, and I've seen two or three of those uh, studies. And I, th- I think it, it was uh, one of them looked at the amount of years you spent in the water and the amount of uh, people in that group mm-hmm. that has surfers here. And it's clear that the more time in the water, the higher or the the, the more severe yeah. case of surfers here. There was a clear correlation to that. Out of the individuals who had surfed for 10 years or less, it's about 45% who had normal ear canals and only 6% had severely obstructed ears. And then in the group that had surfed for longer than 20 years, only 9% had normal ear canals and 16.2% had severely affected ears. So it's quite a big difference. From 50% yeah. down to 9% who had normal ears uh, in the group less than 10 years and more than, than 20. So that, that's definitely uh, something. And also there, there's another study uh, which uh, looks at the temperature instead. So it looks more at um, surfers in colder or warmer waters. And it's definitely also showing that it's more prevalent in cold waters. So yeah, if... Um... If, if any of you listeners would like to have a look at those studies, there will be links in the show notes. Uh, if you go to surfsimply.com slash podcast uh, and find the page for this episode, then we'll have the, uh, all the links in there. And then I, I guess this is, this is going uh, a little bit down a different route, but we're obviously based in tropical water, in yeah. warm water. And it's not uncommon here that the, the water does, you know, carry a little bit because it is warm. It's, it's pretty good at supporting yeah. bacteria and, exactly. you know, if, if you've got river water flowing out or, or, or anything like that, it can get, you can definitely end up surfing in pollution. And have you tested them for that sort of thing? Presumably they work very well for just preventing for infections sure. in tropical water. Yeah, so, so I'd say they're as, I mean, earplugs are as important in warm waters because it's just that the, the issues are different. You don't get surfers here, but you get a lot of ear infections. Yeah. And I'm I, the same thing in Indonesia. I mean, you don't basically, depending on where you live, but if you live near a city, you don't surf when it rains. That's that's sort of, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Especially in Morocco, for example, that's, they don't sort of treat their sewage. They just dump it. You know, it, it goes out straight into the ocean, mm-hmm. straight where it surfs. So that that's where I got that bad infection, actually. So you and a couple of friends then decided to make this new product to to come up with something that was a little bit more practical. Yeah. For so uh, the starting point was actually in Morocco. I think it was. Uh, I was having a really bad ear infection for the fiftieth time. <laughs> I started really wearing earplugs, you know, constantly after that. But but really really got annoyed about the whole situation not being able to hear being blocked out not being able to talk real 
well. So that 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 was really a bad sort of situation, which I felt has to be able. We have to be able to do something about that. I'm an engineer in the background. Yes. Always have you right. know thinking about how can you solve stuff. And at the time, we had started a consulting agency doing sort of this kind of product development for other firms. So we had a good facility. We had some 3D printer. We had a good know-how of how to manufacture stuff and how to prototype stuff. I, I, I've come from a background in Nokia, doing mobile phones. And I had come in contact with a, a certain acoustic mesh used in mobile phones, which actually blocks out water and dust from speakers. And uh, right. that that material was actually made for transmitting as much sound as possible without changing too much of the sound. There's different dampening patterns that can make the sound appear different. And this was supposed to be as sort of transparent as possible. And it's, it's available in different grades. Uh, so we figured that, what, what if we put this in an earplug? Uh, and we started turning out, we did some CAD work, started turning out prototypes, putting on this, this mesh material, which we ordered from one of our old... Uh, Nokia uh, contacts, and then went out mm-hmm. surfing and tried it and tried it in, in a hundred form factors. We we did, I think if, if if people wants to see some some of the early prototypes, go to our old Kickstarter page, which you can find if you search for surfers and Kickstarter, and uh, you can see some of the the quick and early uh, early stuff we did. But we did hundreds. Uh, I think we have like five hundred yeah. prototypes in a, in a box in our office. And it was wow. really fun. Uh, it was a fun process, and you know we, we used them ourselves sent them with friends going on trips and we used them in winter and summer and autumn and, and in all conditions. And we actually did if they did this for about two years uh, before we had something that we felt was really working well. What you might notice is that after some time of use in the water, for example, uh, when you working when you're surfing in really salty places, if salt crystals sort of clog up, you need to sort of rinse the plugs because otherwise you hear a more of a blocked uh, blocked sensation, but you can get rid of that easily by by washing the plugs frequently uh, in water. You said it's an, a nylon mesh. It's a nylon mesh coated with a hydrophobic coating, and it's it's fine enough not to let water through. So we we've, we've tested a bunch of those different uh, meshes with different grades, different uh, coarseness, and we found that this was the right mix of uh, water protection and and you know sound throughput. Uh, you can actually dive down a f- quite a bit with it. We actually did a test with a diver recently who dove down to, I think, mm-hmm. 30 meters with surfers. And, and and they still didn't let water in, so it's, it's oh, wow. quite quite uh, waterproof. Mm-hmm. And at that time, when we felt we had it working, we decided to put it on Kickstarter to sort of test it on the market. Even though Kickstarter yeah. is not the ideal place to go if you had launched a surf product, maybe. But it's still... still uh, validation and um, we actually made it there yeah. we didn't ask for a whole lot of money but we we did uh, get in about twenty six thousand dollars something like that and that covered the basic wow. uh, costs in uh, china for setting up the the molds and stuff like that so it was sort of a, a check check mark for us that okay people want this and uh, we decided to go full scale so we split up the team then back then so i, I took uh, the lead of driving surfers uh, going forward and the other two guys uh, continue to, to run that consulting firm that still runs today. And we're still sitting in the same office together. So that's a cool right. case. Um, and then from there, yeah. it sort of Kickstarter gave us, the, the great thing about Kickstarter wasn't actually the money, it was the, the exposure. So that gave us exposure to some really big uh, distributors who actually contacted us instead of us contacting them, which was great because yeah. then we had two or three pretty big distributors wanting to, to you know, work with our product and we could sort of, 
cherry pick who we liked the most, which was a good case, and ended up working with Creatures of Leisure from from Australia. Congratulations. Yeah, so it's it's great. It's it, it's been a, a good ride. But we couldn't have done it without them. And they've been a great help. We had a, an interesting conversation with the guys from Trace a few yeah. months ago, and they uh, had a very similar sort of lead-in uh, that you guys did, where they launched a Kickstarter campaign, and that that did quite well. They released a product, and then they've released the sort of Mark II product now to to, to go to full market on. It's it's always interesting to hear hear the challenges that go on. Where, where did you find the biggest problems? We are manufacturing most of it in China. We actually have a, one of the parts is manufactured in Sweden, the rest in China. <laughs> so right. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny mix there. But um, China is always tricky, uh, especially if you're doing things smaller scale, because you have to find a supplier which is reliable enough uh, and still willing to work with you at small volumes. Yes. And usually that's not really going well together. So the smaller ones are usually not too reliable, but they're taking on products. And then you have to sort of be really careful about uh, checking every single detail because there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. Um, and the big the big guys don't want to work with you until you produce, you know, a million or so. So it's that that's maybe been a little bit of a challenge, but we managed to find a really good setup. Uh, so we have um, a couple of different suppliers and we have one that assembles the, the product. And they, they're doing a really good job. But it's, it, that, that for sure, if you don't have that know-how that, and haven't done it before, that's a, uh, it's a little bit of a scary thing to, to set up. Pretty actually. intimidating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Cool. It's, I mean, it's very cool. And, and you guys won the Simmer Award last year for design innovation. Yeah, that's right. And that was actually our distributor who applied for it. Um, and um, that was really, that was really a, a cool receipt also on that the product is appreciated by the surf community. Yeah. Those kind you managed of, to get the trophy back over to Sweden. No, they, they still have it. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we were super stoked about winning at least. That was really cool. Uh, and that was also a good, uh, good exposure for us. Um, one other really cool thing is that we actually got, um, as you might know, Tom Carroll on the team as the main uh, global ambassador. Yeah, I noticed you've, you've got some really interesting uh, ambassadors. You've got Tom Carroll, you've got Chris Burkhardt. Yeah, we were not paying our... Our ambassadors money we're actually just trading earplugs for for some help to to get exposure so that's wow. that's really just they need our product and all ambassadors that we have have come to us we haven't come to anyone so that that's 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 a cool uh, cool thing uh, that yeah that people need it and want it and want to help you know that's fantastic and uh, yeah well thank you so much that thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and uh, and tell us about what you've been doing that's uh, a really cool story my pleasure. It's uh, it's fun to share with the world, for sure. If anyone would like to find uh, a pair of surfers, um, where, where should they go to look? Surfers.com is the easiest. Fantastic. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Christian. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So just before we finish, we've got a couple of uh, listener emails. Do you want to read a couple, Will? Sure. Hi there, love the podcast. Thank you for offering your advice to surfers like myself. I've been surfing for two and a half years. I'm 34 years old and 185 pounds. I have a custom-shaped 9.6 log that's worked well for me and has been a great board to learn on. I recently purchased an 8.2 egg shape, 60 liters. I'm I believe to be a level three surfer, trimming down the line, doing bottom turns and cutbacks. While the shorter board is more difficult to catch waves, I find it super fun and maneuverable if or when I do catch the wave. I still feel like I have a way to go 
to be a competent surfer and I'm wondering, do you advise sticking with only one board for surfers at my level? Is it detrimental to my progress to switch back and forth to each board? I'm curious if you have any advice in that regard. Also, what size fin would you put on an 8-2 round pin egg that is 22 mm. inches wide by 3 inches thick? Thanks again. Keep up the great work. Jeff Swisher. So, Asher, I guess you're our fin expert for as far as longboards go. What would you uh, what would you say to the easy part of that question? So, Jeff, um, with fins, it really depends a lot, especially as the board becomes bigger, on what style of waves you're going to be riding and what you plan to do on that wave. For example, the fin that you would want to ride to take off and straight line and go on like a, a big, powerful, quality barreling wave is going to be a lot different than the style of fin you would want to choose um, surfing a, a beach break in Southern California or a pretty much any type of mediocre wave. So you, you want to have in your head what you want to be working on on the wave and what style uh, of waves you're going to be surfing. So for quality waves, I might surf something with a bit more of an upright template. So maybe a fin with a little bit of rake. Uh, like the Jerry Lopez templates work pretty well on big boards. But if it's going to be an all-arounder, I would I'd highly recommend a flex fin. So something of the, the George Greeno style. Uh, reason being, they, they hold really well, but because they have so little tip in them and, they, and so much flex, it, it typically makes the boards feel a little bit smaller. Tip is, is the, the top portion of the fin. So And so a, fle a flex fin is, is one that's got a pretty solid base on it. Yeah, it has a lot of base. Thins and out to a real kind of stiletto point. Thins out and has quite a lot of rake in it. So the distance that the fin travels back. They're a really good hybrid fin. They're good. And, and am I right in saying that in general, you look for uh, the, the height of the fin in inches to be more or less the same as the length of the board in feet? So you'd use a, about an 8-inch fin in an 8-foot board, about a 9-inch fin in a 9-foot board. Yeah, more or less. Um, on a, once again, that really depends the style of the surf. So, for example, a high-performance longboard, you might be using an 8-inch fin. Yeah. Uh, on my nose rider, I have a I have like a ten point five. Yeah. So it, it's really important to to think about what you want the surfboard to be doing and what the board was made for. Yeah. So you know, reading Jeff's email, I I can imagine him out on surfing like a waist to head high day and really trying to do a lot of cutbacks. So he's going to want a sort of a, a fairly upright fin that's um, a bit shorter. So it's going to allow him to have a smaller turning arc and the board isn't going to feel too stiff when he's practicing his cutbacks does that sound about right yeah once again i'd i'd uh, point him towards uh, a, a greeno style fin because it's going to be long enough that the board's not going to slide out if you're trimming from the front of the board so he'll have a lot of ability to surf from the front half um but it, it's still going to be small enough that it's not going to limit him it's not going to be too stiff of a fin Sometimes with those really upright designs, they don't really feel that nice when you're on the tail turning. They're almost a little too pivoty. Rue is a, a man who once chastised me for not riding a 6'2 by 18.5 three-fin thruster. And I, I would say that now all four of us probably have pretty varied quivers. What do you guys think about the, uh, the idea of swapping boards? So this is the problem, listeners, with working with someone for nearly two decades. They, <laughs> they still hold things against you. <laughs> You said a long time ago. So, uh, you know, I think that br very broadly speaking, you know, and as regular listeners to the show will know, we, you know, we could do a deep dive on boards and do a whole show on any one aspect of them. But just as a broad brushstroke, I think there's a general misconception, which is that um, 
you should have sort of the right board for you. And, you know, we coach a lot of people who are saying, what board should I be on? And a, a sort of the premise is that you're looking for that one board, which is optimal for your surfing. That isn't the case. Um, it, a much better way of thinking about it is that they're like, each board is like a musical instrument and you want to kind of learn to play each musical instrument, have fun figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And each new musical instrument you learn is probably going to introduce a new aspect to the other ones that you're playing and allow you to get more joy out of them. So you should be adding to your quiver, surfing different boards. There isn't one board which is right, which is the ultimate board for you. That's, that's a misnomer. And absolutely, like you say in your email, Jeff, if you're, you know, paddling around on a much smaller board, it's going to really increase your paddling. And just because of how hard it is to catch waves and how much smaller the, that sort of spot X, as we call it when we're coaching, is, it's going to force you to really get in the right place. And then when you jump back on your longboard, paddling it is going to feel like so easy, like a dream. And you're mm -hmm. going to be able to catch everything that comes along. You know, equally on a short board, it might feel like it's turning easier, but you're probably trim turning it, not getting your weight back in carving turns. Mm -hmm. And so in just the same way that it's, uh, you, you can sort of improve your wave catching um, on a smaller board, getting on a really big board forces you to actually get back and carve your turns. And then when you get on a smaller board, hopefully, you know, if your stance is right and your technique's right, you're going to be carving the board round rather than just leaning on the rails and trimming it. So, and you know, and I mean, that's just two examples, but you could extend that and extrapolate it over all kinds of boards. Yeah. You know, you've got that finless Alei, which I've stolen off you periodically in Surf yeah. Harry. And it, you know, it's great. You learn so much about what the rails do, not in a cerebral way, but just in a very intuitive, intuitive feel. Mm -hmm. your yeah. muscle memory, your body learns what the fins are doing just by going out and having fun messing around on a finless layout. So yeah, keep building the quiver. There's the excuse you needed to go out and buy, new bo buy more boards. Yeah, I really like how you said, uh, compared it to musical instruments in that, uh, you know, it, it, it's really about having fun learning a new instrument. I think in the long term, in regards to surfboards, surfing a bunch of different boards will keep you interested in going surfing so uh you know if you have a long board and you buy a you bought an 8-2 egg you're going to be more interested to go out surfing so maybe on a day that you you wouldn't have you you, you got this new design you want to figure out and it just pushes you to be in the the water more you're getting more repetition and therefore you're learning new things all right well just before we sign off then, what to watch? Um, what's caught your guys' eye? A couple of things that I enjoyed was 360 spherical videos that you can play around with with your phone or with so a cool. Google Cardboard or something like that. And they, they went and surfed the big ledgy cliffs in Ireland. Is that Eileen's? Is that the name of that spot or is I that a different I can't remember place? if that's Eileen's. The, the cliffs are called the Cliffs of Moa, but um, I can't remember if that... Is that, that in Mordor? Yes, it's definitely <laughs> in Mordor. But it's, it, it's one of those big kind of slabby left-handers that you've seen photos of. Eileen's is a pretty friendly name for a not very friendly wave. Oh, um, we're going over to Eileen's today. Yeah, I'm not sure if that is actually the name of that left-hand slab, but it's that it's that one that you see in, in all the films, isn't it? That yeah. Virgil Smith and those guys are always um, out Anyone else watched anything that uh, kept them amused? I highly recommend everyone to go see the new Connor Coffin edit. His yeah. um, Whatever Beach, I Whatever Beach, yeah, it's a series. The, oh, the Whatever wow. Beaches are a series because they, they did his brother, Parker, a couple of weeks ago. And did and Bobby is... Martinez as well. Yeah. Bobby Martinez and Parker did not have very good music to the edit, so I cannot recommend those. But the Connor Coffin edit was amazing. He can use his rail like I don't think anybody else in the world right now. Mason Ho has released another episode. Yeah, um, I think two more uh, episodes since we were last yeah. on air. Oh, uh, love those. Yeah. Hurricane Swells, is that the latest one? Mm. It's 
Some dicey rock moments, like in all of his <laughs> he, videos. He is a man who likes a wave with a pinnacle of sharp rock yeah. waiting to impale him. Who sits um, with a uh, point of view, like a GoPro or something, on it, and you can just see this like say, a spike of rock coming towards and getting shallower and shallower yeah. and shallower as the wave ends. It's just incredible. I know, and that camera's got like a, a wide-angle lens on it as well. Mm-hmm. So that thing's So if it close. looks close, jeez, yeah. it must be close. Yeah, the final one I'm going to recommend actually is the last few years, Magic Seaweed and Monster Energy have done a, a thing called the Winter Sessions. They've done an a, award for the best heavy, cold water winter waves. And uh, there's a, a best of uh, edit that's gone out, the best of the Winter Sessions 2015 to 2016. And that that made me appreciate being in warm Costa Rica and not needing oh. a six mil wetsuit with hood, boots, gloves and a, a, an inbuilt heater. Right, well, I think that's all we've got time for this week, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If anybody has any feedback or corrections for us, as I'm sure you do, uh, please do get in touch at podcast at Surf Simply. But for now, from all of us, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.